0: And so as the one who brings that word, I come to you like the little boy that came to you on the side of the mountain and handed you his five little loaves and saw you distribute them to thousands of people, saw you transform them into something that could feed everyone. And so, Lord, take what I've prepared with you and feed us by your word, I pray. Amen. Well, friends, our scripture reading this morning is... uh, An expanded version of those words that the children brought to us this morning from Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7, page 1073. Thank you, Vic. These are words that were spoken over, first spoken over 2,700 years ago. And so we're going to ask, Lord, what do these words mean for us this morning? How do they affect our lives? But first, we'll need to understand who they were spoken to and how they affected the people that they were spoken to. So I'll say a little bit about that in a minute. But let's begin Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Kind of picking up in the middle of uh, a section here that has been filled with. Um, Gloom and distress and hunger and fear. And then Isaiah says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, He, God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. That's where Jesus is born and comes or not born, but uh, comes from. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace of the greatness, or some translations say, of the increase of His government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over His kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Amen. As I was uh, meditating on this passage from Isaiah, I kept recalling one scene in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. That's the second movie in the trilogy. And um, there's some pictures that are going to be on the PowerPoint behind me I'm going to show you. Uh, I'll I'll walk through four pictures of this scene, but let me explain first. Uh, The scene is called The Burning of the Westfold. And here's the background. The Westfold is in the kingdom of Rohan. And the king of Rohan, whose name is Theoden, has been compromised, taken over, by a dark wizard named Saruman, who is in league with the dark lord, uh, Sauron. And so as compromised one, the king of Rohan is no longer properly protecting his borders, he's not ruling his land, but instead enemy forces are being allowed to range freely throughout the kingdom of Rohan, and these forces are just burning, and they're pillaging, and they're looting, innocent they're murdering innocent people at will, wherever they go. And so the Westfold is this quiet and unsuspecting village in the mountains of Rohan. And as the scene opens, this um, woman... Me. What do I... Okay, there we go. This woman who's in the bottom left corner here is, um, you, you can just see her head. She's hurriedly mounting her two children on a horse and she's telling the, the older one, Elthane, Elphane, that's the boy, head to Eteras, deep in the mountains and sound the alarm. And then Frida, this young girl, begins to weep and cry and say, Ma, I don't want to go, mommy, I don't want to go. And with deep, Pain etched in her face, this this mother says to Frida. Um, she she looks her in the face and she says, "I will find you." And then she slaps the horse and off uh, off run Elthine and and Frida on the horse to to sound the alarm in Eteras. And as actually, could you turn it, Andrew? There's the mother's face. Could you then go back to that first picture? Thank you. So as they ride away, looking back at their mother longingly, she turns, the mother turns to see these invaders that you can see in the background cresting the hill and beginning to make their way into the far end of her village. And they're already cutting down people as they loot and they burn. It's a horrible scene. A stomach-turning scene. And I think that it's one that kept coming back to me because it's a scene that really seems to capture so much of our human frailty, and especially the the frailty, the fear and the insecurity of um, living, or the gloom and the anxiety of living under a weak and an unstable government that's combined with the presence of great evil. And so we don't live in that place right now. But I would like to invite us, just for a few minutes, to step outside of our place, because the Westfold is not the West Side. So let's just step outside of the West Side and even of our own experience. Let's suspend our experience for a few minutes, and I'd just like to invite us to imagine what the people of the Westfold, but also the people of many parts of the world, experience still today, and to ask ourselves this: What's it like to wake up in the morning, knowing that where you live? There's unchecked evil running rampant around you and that those who are supposed to be protecting you, the law, is actually participating with that evil. What's that like? Where do you turn? Who protects you? What's, what's it like to need to travel? You have to go from somewhere to somewhere And you don't know when you're journeying from town to town whether you'll be attacked, assaulted, raped, robbed. Whether your children will be stolen from you and sold into slavery all over the world. Ann and I have a friend from Iraq, his name is Oday. And about 10 years ago, um, he had recently come over from Iraq and Ann asked him, what was it like? And he said, well, you couldn't stay in your apartment all day. You needed to go to the market to get things to live. But you never knew what would happen at the market. You didn't know if someone was going to drive in and bomb set off a bomb, and so you went to the market and you really didn't know if you were going to come home. And so what's it like to see your family member go off to the market and to not know if they're going to come home? What's it like to never be sure what army might be coming over the hills? You don't know what's on the other side of the hills toward you. And yet to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that whoever's coming is bringing terror and that you'll be completely unable on your own to stand up against them? What's it like to know as the young mother in the scene that your kids and your grandkids and even your life could be taken from you at any moment? What's it like to not know whether you will be able to put food in front of your children tomorrow morning? The questions that I'm asking you are just a few of the questions that the people who received this word from Isaiah were living with every day. They are living with these fears as an ever-present reality. And so their land, their land is not our land. Their land is a land that is full of darkness and of gloom. I think every one of you has probably had the experience at some time or another of walking into a place and feeling like, that this place is dark. Isn't it? Like this place is—it's is, just got an aura about it. It's heavy. Their whole land, their whole life, their whole existence—from the morning, the, the minute they woke up in the morning, till the minute that they went to bed at night—was heavy and dark, and anxious and despairing. From the time that we read these words, it'll be over a hundred years until Jerusalem actually falls. And the people of Judah go into Babylonian captivity, but even now the land's in deep turmoil. And so when Isaiah speaks these words, the Assyrian army, this is in scripture and it's in historical documents, the Assyrian army of hundreds of thousands is moving westward into Canaan. And in the years 721 and 722, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, the whole northern kingdom, will be obliterated and they will never come back. They will be obliterated by the Assyrians. Twenty years later, in 701, an army of several hundred thousand is camped outside the gate of Jerusalem and they are dying and starving and even so desperate that they're eating the bodies of people who die. That's how desperate it gets inside Jerusalem. So, when Isaiah brings this word, this gloom, This distress that we hear about, these are real, they're present. This is um, misery that these people are living under. And even though both the Assyrians and the Babylonians who come after them are actually carrying out God's judgment against his own people for their rebellion, God is still moved to compassion. Because it's like this, God is a father who on the one hand is punishing his wayward children, and at the exact same time, he is feeling their pain, even as he disciplines them. So he can't let their idolatry, he cannot let their evil, he cannot let their rebellion go unpunished, because he's holy. But even while he's punishing them, he's feeling their pain. God's full of compassion. The Bible says he's overflowing with mercy and love, and so he sends Isaiah to, the, to, the, to his own children who is punishing, and he sends Isaiah with this message of hope, And this message of rescue and this message of direction. And here's what Isaiah says in a nutshell. He says, people, a child is coming who will become king. They have no king that's able to provide any real power, any real help in the face of evil. But Isaiah says, a child's coming who will become king and he'll assume leadership in this world. And he will rule over an eternal kingdom of peace justice, and righteousness. The intense brightness of this king and his ever-expanding kingdom will drive out darkness, will shatter oppressive burdens, will end wars. They have people outside the gate. Will end wars and will cause great joy and rejoicing. And then he says this, all of this will come to pass through the zeal or through the energetic, unflagging enthusiasm of God. In other words, he says to this people, no more gloom, no more despair, no more darkness. There's light that's coming into the darkness, and that light is going to drive out the darkness. There's going to be great joy. Now, before we get too excited and start to say, hey, I know, I know, it's Jesus. We know the answer. It's Jesus. He did all these things. It's really important that we pause and that we notice this. It's 700 more years from the time that Isaiah spoke this prophetic word from God until it came to pass. There's more gloom and there's more darkness and there's more oppression to come. And so the people that receive this promise do not see it come to pass and in fact they endure more pain. And so we need to ask ourselves why did God give it to them? And what did He expect them to do with it? If they weren't going to see a wink of it come to pass, what was God's purpose in giving this word? Hope. Hope. Hope for their future. Hope that their present pain will not continue forever. Hope for rescue from the mess that they cannot get themselves out of. Hope that isn't dependent on them, but it's dependent on the giver. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, says the proverb. Deferred means put off. means I don't have it right now. Hope that you don't have right now, if you don't have hope... You don't got nothing. You're sick. And sickness with a sick with a sickness that leads to despairing. And to despair is to be without hope. And God, says Scripture, is the God of all hope. That means He's the only source of hope, but He's the source of all hope. And so God, who's the source of all hope, wants to give and to bring and to pour hope into His people. And so God gives this prophetic word to everyone who would receive it with hope. But he gives it for another reason too. He gives the prophetic word so that all who seek God will know how to pray and what to pray for. Because not everyone in Israel is seeking God, but some are seeking God. And so when you've got a prophetic word that speaks about the future, that says this is what God's going to do, that prophetic word guides you. It helps you know how to pray. And so they, they know how to pray, Lord, bring the child you promised. Lord, bring the child who will become king. Lord, bring the child who will establish justice and peace and righteousness in this world. God gives the prophetic word of rescue so that His people will know how to pray. But then He works through the prayers of these praying people... To bring the prophetic word to pass. See that? He gives the prophetic word so they know how to pray, but then he works through the prayers of the praying people to bring it to pass. That's why he teaches us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So that, listen to this, it's the praying people, Simeon and Anna, who are the first to recognize the Christ child, Luke 2, as he's brought into the temple. Simeon takes him in his arms and he praises God and he says, My eyes, I've seen with my own eyes, I've seen your salvation which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revealing God and the glory of your people. And so the child is born. The one about whom Isaiah prophesied. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Now, when one person, uh, one person points, points this out, they said, when we say government, we, um, we have the, the image that comes to mind is the temporary nature of government. You know, governments rise and they fall. The 20th century is kind of the history of a whole lot of governments rising and falling. And if we don't like somebody who's in office, we depose them, or we vote them out, or we force them out. It's a temporal nature of government, but the use of the word government, that word, and the way we understand it, actually waters down the intensity of what the scripture is saying. And so to our modern mindset, it's better translated like this, all dominion shall be on his shoulders all royalty all rule all never changing authority and power all ability to accomplish whatever is needed desired full and complete control it's all on his shoulders this child This child who is a king, who will be a king. And in a few short years, after Simeon holds him in the temple, we see King Jesus beginning to establish God's kingdom. It's everything that we've been watching over the whole last year together at Gold Avenue Church as we've made our way through the Gospel of Luke. It's wherever Jesus goes, people encounter the redeeming love of God the Father. Wherever Jesus goes, he's leading people into truth. He is bringing news of extravagant forgiveness. He's delivering from darkness. He's taking people out of bondage. He's driving out evil spirits. He's healing bodies, souls, and spirits. He's drawing people into relationship with God the Father. And so in Jesus, Isaiah's prophecy begins to be fulfilled. Wherever Jesus goes, Gloom pushed out by light. Darkness pushed out by light. Light and hope come bursting in. Jesus is a king. He's a king on a mission to establish once again the reign of God on earth. And so in his birth, we see the Magi come and worship him as a king. During his life, they wanted to make him king. In his death, they put a sign above him that says, King of the Jews. He's a king, he's a king, he's a king. He's raised from the dead, he ascends to heaven, and Scripture says he's glorified as king. Scripture says he's exalted to the highest place in all heaven and earth, and he's given the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Jesus Christ is king of kings And Lord of lords, all dominion, all rule belongs to him. And yet, didn't Isaiah say that every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning? That wars will cease? Didn't he say that? Wasn't that part of the prophecy? That the greatness of Jesus' dominion and His peace would have no end? Didn't He say that? Yeah, what about ISIS? And its demonic reign of terror? What about the fact that justice is a foreign concept in many, if not most countries? What about the fact that righteousness is not a very popular word? And that there's very few who actually hunger and thirst to be righteous? And how about the fact that peace not only evades whole nations, but also whole families. That chaos and anxiety and darkness and gloom are very present realities for many people. And so whether it's the dull ache of like seasonal affective disorder, depression, or it's the sharp pain of broken, intense relationships, whether it's the sting of rejection, or the hole that's been left by someone that we love, whether it's the throb of loneliness, the grief of abandonment, the ridicule of abuse, whether it's the ache of hunger, the pain of sickness, the inability to provide what our children need, whether it's the hurt of betrayal, or the shame over ways that we've been sinned against and hurt, whether it's the fear that comes from listening to the news, wave after wave of terror, Paris, Oregon, California, and on and on. We don't need to be convinced that although King Jesus has come and His kingdom is here, His kingdom is not fully come. Has it? Has it? No. So how do we respond to these words that, that how do we who belong to King Jesus and yet suffer the wounds of living in a world that still rebels against Him, how do we hear and respond to these not yet completely fulfilled words? Prayers good, Vic. Yeah? We start by looking back at the words of Isaiah nine seven, that that uh, th- this prophecy ends with. First, I just want to ask a question. Do you believe that Jesus is king over all because your theology says so and the Bible says so, or do you really believe He's king of the whole world? Just you don't have to answer it. I'm just I just want you to ponder it. Because you hear me say that regularly, you hear us preach that regularly. But I want to know if in your hearty hearts you think Jesus is king over the whole world. This one that you can't see, that saved you, that you love, is king over the whole world. Hear the words at the end of Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Not the zeal of Pastor Dave. Joe Whitney. Not the zeal of this church. Zealous as we are. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. God will bring about the fullness of His kingdom reign. God will drive out darkness. God will shatter all oppressive burdens. God will bring peace. We do not say it like those well-wishers that say, peace on earth, but holy Lipton, it's really not that peaceful. God will bring peace on earth. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The full coming of God's kingdom. The hope of a new and renewed earth. New heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65 and 66 is where the book ends. Does not depend on human ability. And there is no power in hell that can stand up against the full coming of God's kingdom. Listen to these words from Revelation and be strengthened in your hearts as you hear them. Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open and there was before me a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and he wages war. This is Jesus. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations that rebel against him. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty against all those who still rebel. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Moving ahead to chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now hear this. When Isaiah prophesied to Israel, it would have been the easiest and the most normal thing in the world to hear his proclamation of a child, to become king of an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, peace, and justice, and to respond with, What are you smoking? Listen, look around you, man. Look around you. We're under siege. We've got nothing. It's dark. Our enemies are huge. Can't you see and feel how dark and gloomy things are? Isaiah, that's wishful thinking. But in fact, nothing was more true than what Isaiah spoke that day. The king has come. The king is reigning. The king lives in you. And in you. And in you. And in everyone who believes in him. And John says, greater is he who lives in you than he who is in the world. And so we are those who are filled with hope. We are bearers of hope and of light. Because the one who has all dominion, and I'm asking you again if you believe that, all dominion, the one who has all dominion lives in us and we share in his dominion. And so we do not fear those who can kill the body. We do not live afraid of the evening news. We hear about ISIS in Paris and Portland, California, and we pray like one of you did several weeks ago in family prayer. Lord, forgive them. Lord, show your love. Lord, bring your light. We face everything from depression and discouragement to ridicule to rage. We face it all with hope, bright hope, because the God of all hope whose son is called in Colossians, the hope of glory lives in us and we in him. Friends, the king has come. The king is reigning. The king is in you and I. And the king is coming back again to judge the living and the dead and to bring about the fullness of his kingdom. And so how do we hear these words from Isaiah and these words from Revelation? Revelation. And how do we respond to them? We echo the words of Revelation 22 as they came as a response to that that word. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, come, King Jesus. And so this Christmas celebration day, we don't just say, Thank you for coming. We also say, come again, King Jesus. Come, bring your peace. Bring your righteousness Bring the fullness of your kingdom. And until you come, we live with hope. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, faith is a gift that you give. We pray that you give it in abundance this morning. That you stir it up in our hearts. That what faith is there, you kindle. so that we are those who respond with yes and amen and let it be as you have said, O Lord. So that we are those who believe what is true about the world and your place in and over it is exactly what you've told us. Lord, we bless you and your name that You're sovereign and in control, and we can trust in that. We thank you that you have not only all dominion in this world, but you have all dominion in our life. That you not only carry the world on your shoulders, you carry our lives on your shoulders. If there's any of us here this morning that you are um, drawing to yourself for the first time, who maybe we haven't placed faith in you before, we come to you right now. And we say, Lord, we believe you. We believe that you come to, came to redeem and to ransom us from darkness, from sin, from its consequences. To bring us into your light. We believe, Lord, we receive you. Receive us into your kingdom. Lord, strengthen each one. Strengthen the church. And use us to bear messages of hope. And of light. And of your kingdom even as you used Isaiah and John. And do it for your glory, Jesus. Amen. I you to lift up your hearts and your hands and to receive this blessing from the King. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may be filled to overflowing with hope by the power of His Holy Spirit. Amen. as um, some of you may want to continue adoring the Lord and um, spending some time in prayer, some of you may be related to that image of an enemy coming over the crust of the hill, and Jesus is king. And he um, is present now to help bring comfort and hope. And so if you'd like prayers about something like that, Feel free to come up, and let's pray with you before you leave. A couple of other quick announcements. Gray Space and Food Pantry will be closed this Friday on Christmas Day, and Children's Worship is going to take a two-week break. Be sure and say thank you to the Children's Worship leaders. There will be um, some of them visiting their families over the holiday weeks. So um, the next couple of weeks, we'll have the privilege of having our children worship with us. So um, blessings on your week.